This morning, uh, Jeff read through all of chapter 40. I promise we won't be reading through all of each chapter as we go through Isaiah. We'll be hitting parts of each of, of the, the chapters from uh, 40 through 66 over the summer. Um, but this one in particular, especially as we're getting started, I wasn't quite sure where to cut it off. What parts make sense for Sunday morning reading? Because the beginning of this part is really important. The end is really important. And you know what? The middle part of chapter 40 is also really important. Um, so it's kind of hard to decide where we're going to cut off. Um, of course, one of these verses or a couple of these verses sound very familiar to us, especially at the beginning. Uh, we hear uh, some words that that seem to get read a lot around Christmas. In fact, if um, our, our blue hymnal does something really helpful for worship planning, it has a list of scriptures at the back and what hymns uh, kind of pertain to those particular um, scripture verses. Except all of the ones for chapter 40 are Advent hymns. They're Christmas hymns, which is, which is fine, but this is not only a passage that we read right around Advent, okay? And of course, the, the last verse uh, of this uh, is a very famous verse. Um, we'll talk about that uh, here in a little bit. Um, so these words are familiar to us in, in different contexts, but we're going to begin looking at the second half of chapter uh, uh, of Isaiah this morning. Remember, we introduced last week that the prophet that's writing is now on the other side of exile, um, or beginning to be on the other side of exile, and looking back, looking back at 200 years of the people of Judah being removed from their homes, being separated from the temple, uh, of being disoriented by being surrounded by Assyrians and Babylonians and all kinds of other mix of people and mix of religions and mix of gods and all kinds of other things. People very disoriented. And actually these next several chapters from uh, about chapter 40 through 55 is kind of constructed as one long flowing poem. Uh, a beautiful uh, tapestry of these different themes of hope and comfort, of um, renewal and restoration being woven together by the prophet. As we look at uh, this chapter 40 this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts in this place uh, this morning be pleasing to you. May these words give us comfort and hope just as they did to uh, the folks living in, in Babylon, removed from their homes, disoriented by exile. I pray that you might speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those of you that get our weekly announcements, uh, I'm not going to ask who all actually read through everything, but... Um, one of those announcements um, is about our sermon series over the summer and is going to give you some assignments, okay? 
Yes, it's summer. Yes, we're out of school. Uh, and so I guess that frees our young people up from other homework. And so now you can uh, be reading along with us. And the rest of you are going to have to look and get your assignment, your reading assignment each week. Um, and what I assigned for this week was chapter 40. And of course, you all uh, passed this week because you all listened to it be read this morning. As you're reading that or as you're hearing it read this morning, let me start by asking what parts in particular give you hope or comfort in these words? Is there some phrase or is there some idea here in particular that brings you comfort, that gives you hope? Maybe besides the opening words, comfort, oh comfort, my people. I'll let you continue to ponder. I think there's a lot of ideas in here that that do bring comfort, whether that's um, a powerful God with a mighty right arm who comes to uh, pick us up as his sheep, or whether that's the creator God who is uh, the creator and sustainer of all things. Um, Maybe what brings you comfort is uh, the fact that there's all these... prophet talks about these other idols being constructed, and yet they don't have power. They don't have strength in and of themselves. Yeah, Dave. I, I, I can add. I was trying to look up the scripture so I could yeah, yeah. it properly. Uh, and there are a lot of things that could bring comfort out of this, but one of the things that spoke to me was it, the rhetorical questions, you know, who does God consult for his enlightenment? You know, who taught him the path of justice? who taught of knowledge and showed him a way of understanding. It's kind of like God is completely unique uh-huh. you know, from the rest of us. For those that couldn't hear and those that are, that are online this morning, Dave's talking about the, these, these few rhetorical questions that are, are asked throughout this passage. Who has taught God? Who has instructed God? Who gave God the idea of, of justice? And the answer is no one. No one has counseled God. God is uh, the, the initiator of all these things. God is, is the, the creator and the sustainer. God is the one who defines what justice or rightness, those things that are the way God wants them to be. All right, that's, all, that's not dependent on us. That's, that's all on God. As we start to look through this passage, these words that are right off the bat, comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. Is Yahweh speaking uh, with words of compassion to a people who have been in a really hard place? There are people that have been in in just uh, some difficult situations who have felt uh, alienated and removed and feel like they have just been through the ringer. And God is speaking words of comfort. And then he tells uh, the prophet to speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now exactly how these sins have been paid for uh, will be addressed down the line in this poem. 
But again, these tender words are spoken to a people who have been uh, removed from the familiar and been forced to live in a land uh, of pagan gods who have not had access to the temple, which was the, the center of their religious life. This is the place they went to meet with God. This is where they, they made their sacrifices. This is where they enjoyed the visible presence of God in their midst, and they haven't been able to go there because the temple has been destroyed. And they've been removed. And the prophet is being told to speak tenderly. And then we're introduced to this voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for Yahweh. Fill in the valleys, move the mountains. Um, Bible scholar N.T. Wright says it's like rolling out the red carpet, a royal welcome that we prepare the way for the king. For a conquered people living under pagan kings, the return of Yahweh was good news to them. They've been surrounded by all, all of these other gods, and the prophet's saying, Prepare the way for Yahweh. Prepare the way for the Lord who is returning. In the ancient Near East, when people fought battles, they weren't just merely battles between nation states and kingdoms. They were actually a manifestation of what they believed was this warfare happening between gods in the heavens. Uh, And so, for instance, we see a little bit of this in uh, Exodus The ten plagues that we read about in Egypt are actually a contest or or a battle between Yahweh, the the God of the Israelites, and the Egyptian gods. They all kind of match up, and it's this contest that's that's happening. What has happened now at this point in Israel's history is they are a conquered people. And so not only has their nation state been defeated, but the way people would have seen it around is their God has been defeated. And yet what is happening throughout this is the prophet is saying, our God is not dead. Our God is still alive and well and great, and he is the king. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. All of these other gods are, are wood and gold and, and, you know, a craftsman made them. But Yahweh is the creator, the sustainer, the one who has formed all this, the one who continues to be the reigning God. The prophet is still proclaiming the majesty of Yahweh. And so we have this voice crying out in the wilderness. Of course, to me, the wilderness seems kind of an odd place to be welcoming Yahweh. Why would we go out into the wilderness to welcome our God? Why not into the the middle of the city to, to proclaim the coming of the king? Well, the wilderness is where Yahweh affirms his relationship with his people. All throughout Scripture, wilderness plays an important role in God connecting to His people. This is where Moses receives the law. 
This is where they, they get the instructions for the tabernacle and the priesthood. This is the place where Israel is tested in Exodus. They, they leave Egypt and they uh, immediately find themselves out in the wilderness and, and they find themselves at a place of testing between a rock and a hard place, between uh, the Egyptian army who has now decided they're going to pursue them and so they've got death on one hand and they're facing the sea on the other hand. So their options are death and death. And what do they do? They trust God and they walk through death to life in the wilderness. This is where in the wilderness is where the people learn to trust for daily bread. This is where they learn to trust for water in dry places. The wilderness is actually a very precious place in Scripture. It's a place we don't like to think about. It's a place we're uncomfortable with. It's a place that's inconvenient. But this is the place where God is often meeting with his people. Again, N.T. Wright says something like, this is, uh, this is like a couple who goes back to the place of their first date to rekindle the magic. God is going back with his people into the wilderness and remember what it was like. Remember what it was like to have such an intimate relationship. Remember what it was like for, for you to trust me for daily bread. Remember what it was like when you were thirsty and I provided water for you. Remember what it was like to walk through the sea. Remember this relationship we had? Remember when we went camping together in that tabernacle? And so let's go back to the wilderness. Let's go back to this place where we feel uncomfortable, where it's inconvenient, when, when you know, we can't just rely on ourselves. Let's go back to the place where you trusted me, where we learned to be in relationship together. Exile was movement back into the wilderness where God had shared an intimate relationship with his people. Exile has been an opportunity to reconnect with God's people and for them to fall in love and to hope, trust, and wait on Yahweh all over again. Of course, the New Testament writers in the early church pick up on these words and they took them and they applied them to John the Baptist who goes back into the wilderness. John doesn't go into the city. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Rome. He goes out into the wilderness. And he's proclaiming repentance from sin, trusting God, and baptism. He goes back because the people need to have their love for Yahweh rekindled once again. Over the last couple of years, you've heard this theme over and over again about how the church in the West is facing exile, and I'm not going to rehash all of that. We've talked on multiple occasions about the idea of the church, especially in the United States and Europe and in the West, facing exile. And we know that things aren't the way they used to be. 
And of course, for you and I, it continues to be uncomfortable. People don't do the things that they used to do, and our society doesn't do the things they used to. Of course, it's a reminder that some parts of the world, uh, the church is actually growing by leaps and bounds, especially in the, what we call the global south, Africa, South America. Uh, the church is, is expanding and, and growing immensely. But here in the West, our culture has, has shifted and we find ourselves in a different set of circumstances. I was reading in one of the last um, um, editions of the, the Messenger magazine a conversation from several uh, Church of the Brethren District executive ministers. Several of them talking about the decline of numbers in the Church of the Brethren in attendance. And of course, this isn't something just happening in the Church of the Brethren. Every denomination in the United States, and it's been backed up by multiple studies of the church, are declining in numbers. One of the younger DEs said something about his, his view of this exile. And I understand that for um, folks that have given 50, 60, 70, 80 some of you 90 years to the church and, and hoped to make it what it was back in the day that this is very hard to see that things are very different and to see our culture has shifted in very different ways. Each morning we wake up and we are reminded that in many ways we are people in exile, removed from the familiar. But maybe being back in the wilderness is really an opportunity to fall in love with Yahweh all over again. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's comfortable or convenient. But I'm also reminded that few of the really good things in life are. Few of the things that are really worth pursuing in life are convenient, are easy, are comfortable. It's part of the, the journey that, that makes them so precious. And so to me, these words of the prophet are a reminder that exile is not forever. How long will it be? Yahweh knows. It may be the rest of your life. It may be the rest of my life. It may be my children's lives. At this point, the prophet is looking back over 200 years of being removed. Generation after generation after generation after generation. And yet, Yahweh is God. As the poem continues, we're reminded that people in and of themselves don't have what it takes to restore things or to bring about the kingdom, uh, the return of the king. The prophet says, people are like grass, but the word of our God will stand forever. We don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. And yet the, the word, the, the part of God that moves forward and, and is continuing to, to move in our midst stands forever. 
whether people read or comprehend, whether the public reading of Yahweh's word is allowed or not, whether it appears as God's people are conquered or not, Yahweh's word stands. God remains God. And so the prophet says to go to the high places and announce the good news that God is the king of the universe and comes to rule. And how does God rule? With a mighty arm like a shepherd caring for his sheep. It's a very strange image of God. If I had to think even back in Babylon, I would have preferred the mighty right arm of God as the warrior. But that's not what we get. We get the the mighty arm of God who reigns like a farmer caring for his livestock. A God who gets down into the thick of it with his animals, with his sheep. A God who we're told by Jesus in the New Testament will even leave the herd of 99 to pursue the one that is lost but also a God who is the creator, sustainer of life, who is incomparable, who is the originator of everything. A God who doesn't rely on anyone or anything. A God beyond any of the idols made by craftsmen in Babylon. A God who sits above the firmament. And God has heard his people. They ask, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God? This is people asking after 200 years, has God forgotten us? Have we been, have we been abandoned? Where is Yahweh in the midst of this? Why are we here in exile? And the prophet responds, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He didn't get tired and worn out from you all living in exile. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who, different translations use a different, different words here. Some say wait, that's the word that was used in the NRSV that we read from this morning. Those who wait on the Lord. Other translations say those who hope in the Lord. The Hebrew word carries the idea of wait, of looking for, hoping for, expecting something to happen. Those who wait with hope and expectation for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those are beautiful words. You slap them on a poster on a t-shirt and they're good enough. Unfortunately, many of us, that's the only way we've actually interacted with those words. 
but spoken to people that are living in exile, people who have been removed and disoriented and and trying to cling on to their faith in God, their, their role as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, to people who have been living under the kings of Assyria and Babylon, who are feeling weary and worn out and tired, these words are good news. Not sentiment, sentimentality on a t-shirt or a poster. These words are incredible good news. Generation after generation being raised in a pluralistic society, removed from the familiar, removed from the way it used to be. And of course, these people in exile, they have to innovate ways of meeting as a community of faith. In the old days, they used to, to meet at the temple. They would, you know, their religious lives uh, were, were centered on what happened at the temple. When the temple's destroyed, they have to find new ways of being in community together. And so they actually developed the synagogue system. This is where we're going to learn. This is where we're going to grow. This is where we're going to meet and and teach our young people and pass on our faith. We have to find a new expression because we can't go back to the temple. And so they have to innovate and think about different ways to meet as the, the community of faith. They have to innovate ways of continuing to try to be faithful and continue their beliefs and their practices. So when they hear these words spoken of renewed strength and hope despite what they've been through, this is good news. As the church in the West lives through the wilderness, just as the people here are invited to prepare the way for the return of the king, and we'll see more about who this king is and how this king operates and what it looks like for this king to come throughout this this poem, throughout um, Isaiah unfolding here. We're going to see a little bit more about how this God, this king, The servant operates. But the people are invited to participate in paving the way led by Jesus. That we are invited to participate in paving the way led by Jesus. And heaven knows we've got some real potholes and speed bumps in the way of preparing the way for the king. Reading this passage about preparing the way, about valleys filled in and mountains flattened out, I was reminded that Jesus said that if we have even the smallest faith, we might pray and ask the mountains to move. I don't know about you, but I've never actually gone out to a mountain and asked for it to move. But I also have never gone out with a shovel and prayed for that mountain to move.
we're reminded every day that there are some mountains and canyons in our world. And you list all of the things that are happening around us. Uh, schools being shot up and, and, and all kinds of violence happening in our own country and countries around the world and all kinds of brokenness between people and, and divisiveness and all kinds of things that, that tear at our relationship with one another. Maybe living in the wilderness has exposed even more of the mountains and canyons that exist. And it occurs to me that we can condemn the mountains and the valleys. We can shake our fist. We can wish for the good old days when things were flatter. And maybe they were, and maybe they weren't. We can feel worn out and tired, kneeling beside the waters in Babylon and lamenting what was. Or, we wait with hope and expectation, looking for the mountains and valleys with a shovel in hand, praying for God to move the mountains while we participate in answering our prayer. While little by little we pray and we shovel and make things a little flatter. We participate in what God is doing in our midst, what God is doing in our community already to flatten some of those mountains and to fill in some of those valleys. This is a beautiful poem of good news, of hope that exile is not the end of the story. And so I hope as people living in the United States in 2022, we find hope in these words. That Yahweh is still God that Jesus Christ is still Lord. Despite what others may think or say or what's happening around us, God is still doing something and moving in our midst and you and I are invited to participate in that. This is good news for us. This is good news for the life of the world. This is good news for family and friends that Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to um, rise as we sing our closing hymn this morning.